0: Section 1. Dean Swift. Part 1. Of Irish Wit and Humor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson. Irish Wit and Humor. Author is anonymous. Section 1. Dean Swift. His birth. Dr. Jonathan Swift dean of st patrick's was born a d sixteen sixty seven in hoey's court dublin the fourth house right-hand side as you enter from werburgh street the houses in this court still bear evidence of having been erected for the residence of respectable folks the dean's house as it is usually designated had marble chimney pieces was wainscoted from hall to garret and had panelled oak doors, one of which is in possession of Dr. Willis Rathmines, a gentleman who takes a deep interest in all matters connected with the history of his native city. Singular Event When Swift was a year old, an event happened to him that seems very unusual. For his nurse, who was a woman of Whitehaven, being under the absolute necessity of seeing one of her relations who was then extremely sick and from whom she expected a legacy and being extremely fond of the infant she stole him on shipboard unknown to his mother and uncle and carried him with her to whitehaven where he continued for almost three years for when the matter was discovered his mother sent orders by all means not to hazard a second voyage till he could be better able to bear it the nurse was so careful of him that before he returned he had learned to spell and by the time that he was five years old he could read any chapter in the bible after his return to ireland he was sent at six years old to the school of kilkenny from whence at fourteen he was admitted into the Dublin University. A certificate of marriage. Swift, in one of his pedestrian journeys from London towards Chester, is reported to have taken shelter from a summer tempest under a large oak on the roadside at no great distance from Lichfield. Presently a man, with a pregnant woman, more driven by the like impulse to avail themselves of the same covert, the dean entering into conversation found the parties were destined for lichfield to be married as the situation of the woman indicated no time should be lost a proposition was made on his part to save them the rest of the journey by performing the ceremony on the spot the offer was gladly accepted and thanks being duly returned the bridal pair as the sky brightened was about to return But the bridegroom, suddenly recollecting that a certificate was requisite to authenticate the marriage, requested one, which the dean wrote in these words, Under an oak in stormy weather I joined this rogue and wench together, and none but he who rules the thunder can put this wench and rogue asunder. GRACE AFTER DINNER swift was once invited by a rich miser with a large party to dine being requested by the host to return thanks at the removal of the cloth uttered the following grace thanks for this miracle this is no less than to eat manna in the wilderness where raging hunger reigned we've found relief and seen that wondrous thing a piece of beef here chimneys smoke that never smoked before and we've all ate where we shall eat no more the three crosses Swift in his journeys on foot from Dublin to London was accustomed to stop for refreshments or rest at the neat little ale houses at the roads side one of these between Dunchurch and Daventry was formally distinguished by the sign of the three crosses in reference to the three intersecting ways which fixed the site of the house at this the dean called for his breakfast but the landlady being engaged with accommodating her more constant customers some wagoners, and staying to settle an altercation which unexpectedly arose keeping him waiting and inattentive to his repeated exclamations he took from his pocket a diamond and wrote on every pane of glass in her best room to the landlord there hang three crosses at thy door hang up thy wife and she'll make four chief justice Whitshed. swift in a letter to pope thus mentions the conduct of this worthy Chief Justice. I have written in this kingdom a discourse to persuade the wretched people to wear their own manufactures instead of those from England. This treatise soon spread very fast, being agreeable to the sentiments of a whole nation, except of those gentlemen who had employments or were expectants, upon which a person in great office here immediately took the alarm he sent in haste to lord chief justice Whitshed, and informed him of a seditious factious and virulent pamphlet lately published with a design of setting the two kingdoms at variance directing at the same time that the printer should be prosecuted with the utmost rigour of the law the chief justice had so quick an understanding that he resolved if possible to outdo his orders the grand juries of the county and city were practiced effectually with to represent the said pamphlet with all aggravating epithets for which they had thanks sent them from england and their presentments published for several weeks in all the newspapers the printer was seized and forced to give great bail after this trial the jury brought him in not guilty although they had been culled with the greatest industry the chief justice sent them back nine times and kept them eleven hours until being tired out they were forced to leave the matter to the mercy of the judge by what they call a special verdict during the trial the chief justice among other singularities laid his hand on his breast, and protested solemnly that the author's design was to bring in the pretender, although there was not a single syllable of party in the whole treatise, and although it was known that the most eminent of those who professed his own principles publicly disallowed his proceedings. But the cause being so very odious and unpopular, the trial of the verdict was deferred from one term to another, until, upon the arrival of the Duke of Grafton, the Lord Lieutenant, His Grace, after mature advice and permission from England, was pleased to grant a nole prosequi. CHIEF JUSTICE WITCHHEAD'S MOTTO ON HIS COACH LIBERTAS ET NATALI SOLUM LIBERTY AND MY NATIVE COUNTRY Libertas et Natale Solum Fine words I wonder where you stole em Could nothing but thy chief reproach serve for a motto on thy coach? But let me now the words translate Natale Solum my estate My dear estate how well I love it My tenants if you doubt will prove it They swear I am so kind and good I hugged em till i squeeze their blood libertas bears a large import first how to swagger in a court and secondly to show my fury against an uncomplying jury and thirdly tis a new invention to favor wood and keep my pension and fourthly tis to play an odd trick get the great seal and turn out broderick and fifthly you know whom i mean to humble that vexatious dean and sixthly for my soul to barter it for fifty times its worth to corret now since your motto thus you construe i must confess you've spoken once true libertas et natale solum you had good reason when you stole em on the same upright CHIEF JUSTICE Whitshed IN CHURCH YOUR GRANDSIRE CUT HIS THROAT. TO DO THE JOB TOO LONG HE TARRIED. HE SHOULD HAVE HAD MY HEARTY VOTE TO CUT HIS THROAT BEFORE HE MARRIED. TO QUILLICA. THIS WAS A COUNTRY HOUSE OF DR. SHERIDAN'S WHERE SWIFT AND SOME OF HIS FRIENDS SPENT A SUMMER IN THE YEAR 1725. AND BEING IN VERY BAD REPAIR, SWIFT WROTE THE FOLLOWING LINES ON THE OCCASION. LET ME THY PROPERTIES EXPLAIN A ROTTEN CABIN, DROPPING RAIN, chimneys WITH SCORN REJECTING SMOKE, STOOLS, TABLES, CHAIRS, AND BEDSTEADS BROKE. HERE ELEMENTS HAVE LOST THEIR USES, AIR RIPENS NOT, NOR EARTH PRODUCES in vain we make poor sheila toil fire will not roast nor water boil through all the valleys hills and plains the goddess want in triumph reigns and her chief officers of state sloth dirt and theft around her wait Mr. Pulteney Swift says in a letter to Mr. Pulteney i will do an unmannerly thing which is to bequeath you an epitaph for forty years hence in two words ultimus britannorum you never forsook your party you might often have been as great as the court can make any man so but you preserved your spirit of liberty when your former colleagues had utterly sacrificed theirs and if it shall ever begin to breathe in these days it must entirely be owing to yourself and one or two friends but it is altogether impossible for any nation to preserve its liberty long under a tenth part of the present luxury infidelity and a million of corruptions we see the gothic system of limited monarchy is extinguished in all the nations of europe it is utterly extirpated in this wretched kingdom and yours must be next such has ever been human nature that a single man without any superior advantages either of body or mind but usually the direct contrary is able to attach twenty millions and drag them voluntarily at his chariot wheels but no more of this i am as sick of the world as i am of age and disease i live in a nation of slaves who sell themselves for nothing resolutions when i come to be old these resolutions seem to be of that kind which are easily formed and the propriety of which we readily admit at the time we make them but secretly never design to put them in practice one not to marry a young woman two not to keep young company unless they really desire it three not to be peevish or morose or suspicious four not to scorn present ways or wits or fashions Or men or war etc five not to be fond of children six not to tell the same story over and over to the same people seven not to be covetous eight not to neglect decency or cleanliness for fear of falling into nastiness nine not to be over-severe with young people, but to give allowance for their youthful follies and weaknesses. 10. Not to be influenced by, or give ear to, knavish, tattling servants or others. 11. Not to be too free of advice, nor trouble any but those who desire it. 12. 12. To desire some good friends to inform me which of these resolutions i break or neglect and wherein and reform accordingly thirteen not to talk much nor of myself fourteen not to boast of my former beauty or favor with ladies etc fifteen not to hearken to flatteries or believe I can be loved by a young woman sixteen not to be positive or opinionative seventeen not to set up for observing all these rules for fear I should observe none miss Bennett this lady was a celebrated beauty in her day and often mentioned by Swift dr. arbuthnot thus speaks of her in one of his letters amongst other things i had the honor to carry an irish lady to court that was admired beyond all the ladies in france for her beauty she had great honors done her the hussar himself was ordered to bring her the king's cat to kiss her name is bennett this circumstance gave rise to the following lines by the dean for when, as Nellie came to France, invited by her cousins, across to Tuileries, every glance killed Frenchmen by whole dozens, the king, as he at dinner sat, did beckon to his hussar, and bid him bring his tabby cat for charming Nell to bus her. The ladies were with rage provoked to see her so respected. The men looked arched at Nellie stroked and puss her tail erected but not a man did look employ except on pretty nelly then said the duke de villeroi ah qu'elle est bien jolie the courtiers all with one accord broke out in nelly's praises admired her rose and les enfades which are your terms THE FEAST OF O'Rourke. Swift had been heard to say more than once that he would like to pass a few days in the county of Leitrim, as he was told that the native Irish in that part were so obstinately attached to the rude manners of their ancestors that they could neither be induced by promises nor forced by threats to exchange them for those of their neighbors swift no doubt wished to know what they would get by the exchange mr Cor was resolved that the dean should be indulged to the fullest extent of his wish for this purpose he had a person posted in Cavan who was to give him immediate notice when the dean arrived in that town which he usually did once a year and where he remained a day or two or longer if the weather was not fair enough to travel the instant mr gore was informed of the dean's arrival he called and invited him to pass a few days at a noble mansion which he had just finished on a wing of his own estate in that county the dean accepted the invitation and as the season was fine everything as he advanced excited his attention for like other men he was at times subject to the sky influence and used to complain of the winds of march and of the gloom of november mr gore had heard so much of swift's peculiar manners that he was determined he should have his way in everything but was resolved however that he should be entertained in the old irish style of hospitality which mr gore always kept up to such a degree that his house might be called a public inn without sign the best pipers and harpers were collected from every quarter as well as the first singers for music is an essential ingredient in every irish feast the dean was pleased with many of the irish airs but was peculiarly struck with the feast of o'rourke which was played by jeremy dignum the irish timotheus who swept the lyre with flying fingers when he was told that in the judgment of the dean he carried off the spolia opima from all the rest of the musical circle the words of the air were afterwards sung by a young man with so much taste and execution that the dean expressed a desire to have them translated into english dr gore told him that the author A mr mcgowran lived at a little distance and that he would be proud to furnish a literal translation of his own composition either in latin or english for he was well skilled in both languages mr gore accordingly sent for the bard the laureate of the plains as he called himself who came immediately i am very well pleased said the dean with your composition the words seem to be what my friend pope calls an echo to the sense i am pleased and proud answered Macgowran that it has afforded you any amusement and when you sir addressing himself to dean put all the things of the irish harp in tune it will yield your reverence a double pleasure and perhaps put me out of my senses with joy mcgowrin in a short time presented the dean with a literal translation for which he rewarded him very liberally and recommended him to the protection of mr gore who behaved with great kindness to him as long as he lived to this incident we are indebted for the translation of a song or poem which may be called a true picture of an irish feast where every one was welcome to eat what he pleased TO DRINK WHAT HE PLEASED, TO SAY WHAT HE PLEASED, TO SING WHAT HE PLEASED, TO FIGHT WHEN HE PLEASED, TO SLEEP WHEN HE PLEASED, AND TO DREAM WHAT HE PLEASED. WHERE ALL WAS NATIVE, THEIR DRESS, THE PRODUCE OF THEIR OWN SHUTTLE, THEIR CUPS AND TABLES, THE GROWTH OF THEIR OWN WOODS, THEIR WHISKEY WARM FROM THE STILL AND FAITHFUL TO ITS FIRES. THE DEAN, HOWEVER, DID NOT TRANSLATE THE WHOLE OF THE POEM the remaining stanzas were translated some years since by mr wilson as follows who raised this alarm says one of the clergy and threatening severely cease fighting i charge ye a good knotted staff the full of his hand instead of the sporadies backed his command so falling to thrash fast as he was able a trip and a box stretched him under the table then rose a big friar to settle them straight but the back of the fire was quickly his fate from whence he cried out do you thus treat your pastors ye that scarcely were bred to the sown wise masters that when with the pope i was getting my lore ye were roasting potatoes at the foot of shemore SWIFT'S BEHAVIOR AT TABLE SWIFT'S MANNER OF ENTERTAINING HIS guests, AND HIS BEHAVIOR AT TABLE WERE CURIOUS. A FREQUENT VISITOR THUS DESCRIBED THEM. HE PLACED HIMSELF AT THE HEAD OF THE TABLE AND OPPOSITE TO A GREAT PIER GLASS, SO THAT HE COULD SEE WHATEVER HIS SERVANTS DID AT THE MARBLE SIDEBOARD BEHIND HIS CHAIR. HE WAS SERVED ENTIRELY IN PLATE, and with great elegance. The beef being once over-roasted, he called for the cook-maid to take it downstairs and do it less. The girl very innocently replied that she could not. Why, what sort of a creature are you? exclaimed he, to commit a fault which cannot be mended. Then, turning to the one that sat next to him, he said very gravely that he hoped, as the cook was a woman of genius, he should, by this manner of arguing, be able, in about a year's time, to convince her she had better send up the meat too little than too much done. At the same time he charged the men-servants that, whenever they thought the meat was ready, to take it up, spit and all, and bring it up by force, promising to assist them in case the cook resisted. Another time the dean, turning his eye towards the looking-glass, espied the butler, opening a bottle of ale and helping himself. Ha, friend, said the dean, sharp is the word with you, I find, you have drunk my ale, for which I stop two shillings out of your board wages this week, for I scorn to be outdone in anything, even in cheating. COUNTESS OF BURLINGTON Swift was dining one day with the Earl of Burlington, soon after his lordship's marriage, when that nobleman, expecting some diversion from Swift's oddities of behavior, purposefully neglected to name him to his lady, who was entirely ignorant of the dean's person. The dean generally wore his gowns till they were quite rusty, WHICH BEING THE CASE, SHE SUPPOSED HIM TO BE SOME CLERGYMAN OF NO GREAT CONSEQUENCE. AFTER DINNER THE DEAN SAID TO HER, LADY BURLINGTON, I HEAR YOU CAN SING. COME, SING ME A SONG. THE LADY, DISGUSTED WITH THIS UNCEREMONIOUS WAY OF ASKING SUCH A FAVOR, POSITIVELY REFUSED HIM. HE SAID SHE COULD SING, OR HE WOULD MAKE HER. WHAT, MADAM? I SUPPOSE YOU TAKE ME FOR ONE OF YOUR POOR, PALTRY, ENGLISH HEDGE-PARSONS. SING WHEN I BID YOU. AS THE EARL DID NOTHING BUT LAUGH AT HIS FREEDOM, THE LADY WAS SO VEXED THAT SHE BURST INTO TEARS AND RETIRED. HIS FIRST COMPLIMENT WHEN HE SAW HER A LITTLE TIME AFTERWARDS WERE, PRAY, MADAM, ARE YOU AS PROUD AND ILL-NATURED NOW AS WHEN I SAW YOU LAST? to which she replied with the greatest good humour, No, Mr. Dean, I will sing for you now, if you please. From this time he conceived the greatest esteem for her, and always behaved with the utmost respect. Those who knew Swift took no offence at his bluntness of behaviour. It seems Queen Caroline did not, if we may credit his words in the verses on his own death swift's political principles in a letter to pope alluding to the days when he took part in politics he thus expresses himself i had likewise in those days a mortal antipathy to standing armies in times of peace because i always took standing armies to be only servants hired by the master of the family to keep his own children in slavery and because I conceived that a prince who could not think himself secure without mercenary troops must needs have a separate interest from that of his subjects. As to parliaments, I adored the wisdom of that Gothic institution which made them annual, and I was confident that our liberty could never be placed upon a firm foundation until that ancient law were restored among us for who sees not that while such assemblies are permitted to have a longer duration there grows up a commerce of corruption between the ministry and the deputies wherein they both find account to the manifest danger of liberty which traffic would neither answer the design nor expense if parliaments met once a year i ever abominated the scheme of politics now about thirty years old of setting up a moneyed interest in opposition to that of the landed for i conceived there could not be a truer maxim in government than this that the possessors of the soil are the best judges of what is for the advantage of the kingdom if others had thought the same way funds of credit and south sea projects would neither have been felt nor heard of i could never see the necessity of suspending any law upon which the liberty of the most innocent persons depend neither do i think this practice has made the taste of arbitrary power so agreeable as that we should desire to see it repeated every rebellion subdued and plot discovered contributes to the firmer establishment of the prince in the latter case the knot of conspirators is entirely broken and they are to begin their work anew under a thousand disadvantages so that those diligent inquiries into remote and problematical guilt with a new power of enforcing them by chains and dungeons to every person whose face a minister thinks fit to dislike, are not only opposite to that maxim which declares it better that ten guilty men should escape than one innocent suffer, but likewise leave a gate wide open to the whole tribe of informers, the most accursed and prostitute and abandoned race that God ever permitted to plague mankind. SWIFT'S CHARITY one cold morning a poor ancient woman sat at the deanery steps a considerable time during which the dean saw her through a window and no doubt commiserated her desolate condition his footman happened to go to the door and the poor creature besought him to give a paper to his reverence the servant read it and told her his master had something else to do than to mind her petition. WHAT IS THAT, YOU SAY, FELLOW, SAID THE DEAN, PUTTING HIS HEAD OUT OF THE WINDOW, COME UP HERE DIRECTLY. THE MAN OBEYED, AND WAS ORDERED TO TELL THE WOMAN TO COME UP TO HIM. AFTER BIDDING HER TO BE SEATED, HE DIRECTED SOME BREAD AND WINE TO BE GIVEN TO HER. AFTER WHICH, TURNING ROUND TO THE MAN, HE SAID, AT WHAT TIME DID I ORDER YOU TO OPEN AND READ A PAPER DIRECTED TO ME, OR TO REFUSE A LETTER FROM ANYONE? hark you sirrah you have been admonished by me for drunkenness idleness and other faults but since i have discovered your inhuman disposition i must dismiss you from my service so pull off your clothes take your wages and let me hear no more of you public absurdities in ireland among the public absurdities in ireland swift notices the insurance office against fire the profits of which to the amount of several thousand pounds were annually remitted to england for observes he as if we could well spare the money the society marks upon our houses spread faster and further than the colonies of frogs and we are not only indebted to england for the materials to light our own fires but for engines to put them out swift's peculiarity of humor trifles become of some consequence when connected with a great name or when they throw any light on a distinguished character spence thus relates a story told by pope dr swift had an odd blunt way that is mistaken by strangers for ill-nature it is so odd that there is no describing it but by facts i'll tell you one that first comes into my head one evening gay and i went to see him you know how intimately we were all acquainted on our coming in hey hey gentlemen says the doctor what's the meaning of this visit how came you to leave all the lords that you are so fond of to come here to see a poor dean. Because we would rather see you than any of them. Ay, any one that did not know you so well as I do, might believe you. But since you are come, I must get some supper for you, I suppose. No, doctor, we have supped already. Supped already? That's impossible why it's not eight o'clock yet. That's very strange. But if you had not supped, I must have got something for you. Let me see what I should have had. A couple of lobsters. Aye, that would have done very well. Two shillings. Tarts. A shilling. But you will drink a glass of wine with me, though you supped so much before your usual time, only to spare my pocket. No, we had rather talk with you than drink with you but if you had supped with me as in all reason you ought to have done you must then have drank with me a bottle of wine two shillings two and two is four and one is five just two and sixpence apiece there pope there's half a crown for you and there's another for you sir for i won't save anything by you i am determined this was all said and done with his usual seriousness on such occasions and in spite of everything we could say to the contrary he actually obliged us to take the money dr bolton dr theophilus bolton was not only a learned divine but a very fine gentleman his merit as a preacher was so eminent that it was early rewarded with a mitre swift went to congratulate him on the occasion when he observed that as his lordship was a native of ireland and had now a seat in the house of peers he hoped he would employ his eloquence in the service of his distressed country the prelate told him the bishopric was but a very small one and he could not hope for a better if he disobliged the court very well said swift then it is to be hoped when you have a better you will become an honest man ay that i will mr dean till then my lord farewell answered swift the prelate was soon translated to a richer see on which occasion swift called to remind him of his promise but to no purpose there was an archbishopric in view and till that was obtained nothing could be done having in a few years attained this object likewise he then waited on the dean and told him i am now at the top of my preferment for i well know that no irishman will ever be made primate therefore as i can rise no higher in fortune or station i will most zealously promote the good of my country from that he became a most active patriot the scribblerous club before swift retired to ireland mr pope dr arbuthnot mr gay mr parnell mr jarvis and swift formed themselves into a society called the scribblerous club they wrote a good many things in conjunction and according to goldsmith gay was usually the amanuensis the connection between these wits advanced the fame and interest of them all they submitted their several productions to the review of their friends and readily adopted alterations dictated by taste and judgment unmixed with envy or any sinister motive when the members of the scribblerous club were in town they were generally together and often made excursions into the country they generally preferred walking to riding and all agreed once to walk down to lord burlington's about twelve miles from town it was swift's custom in whatever company he might visit to travel to endeavour to procure the best bed for himself to secure that on the present occasion swift who was an excellent walker proposed as they were leaving town that each should make the best of his way dr parnell guessing the dean's intentions pretended to agree but as his friend was out of sight he took a horse and arrived at his lordship's by another way before swift having acquainted his noble host with the other's design he begged of him to disappoint it it was resolved that swift should be kept out of the house swift had never had the smallpox and was as all his friends knew very much afraid of catching that distemper a servant was dispatched to meet him as he was approaching the gate and to tell him that the smallpox was raging in the house that it would be unsafe for him to enter the doors and that there was a field-bed in the summer-house in the garden at his service thither the dean was under the necessity of betaking himself he was forced to be content with a cold supper whilst his friends whom he had tried to outstrip were feasting in the house at last after they thought they had sufficiently punished his too eager desire for his own accommodation they requested his lordship to admit him into the company the dean was obliged to promise he would not afterwards when with his friends attempt to secure the best bed to himself swift was often the butt of their wagery, which he bore with great good humour knowing well that though they laughed at his singularities they esteemed his virtues admired his wit and venerated his wisdom many were the frolics of the Scriblerus club they often evinced the truth of an observation made by the poet, "Dulce est desipere in loco." The time for wits to play the fool is when they are met together to relax from the severity of mental exertion. Their follies have a degree of extravagance much beyond the phlegmatic merriment of sober dullness, and can be relished by those only who, having wit themselves, can trace the extravagance to the real source. This society carefully abstained from their frolics before the stupid and ignorant, knowing that on no occasion ought a wise man to guard his words and actions more than when in the company of fools. How long the scribblerous club lasted is not exactly ascertained or whether it existed during the intimacy between swift and addison previous to the doctor's connection with the tory ministry the upstart there was one character which through life always kindled swift's indignation the haughty presuming tyrannizing upstart a person of this description chanced to reside in the parish of Laracour swift omitted no opportunity of humbling his bride but as he was as ignorant as insolent he was obliged to accommodate the coarseness of the lash through the callicity of the back the following lines have been found written by swift upon this man the rascal that's too mild a name does he forget from whence he came has he forgot from whence he sprung a mushroom in a bed of dung a maggot in a cake of fat the offspring of a beggar's brat as eels delight to creep in mud to eels he may compare his blood his blood in mud delights to run witness his lazy lousy son puffed up with pride and insolence without a grain of common sense see with what consequence he stalks with what pomposity he talks see how the gaping crowd admire the stupid blockhead and the liar how long shall vice triumphant reign how long shall mortals bend to gain how long shall virtue hide her face and leave her votaries in disgrace let indignation fire my strains another villain yet remains let purse-proud see something next approach with what an air he mounts his coach a cart would best become the knave a dirty parasite and a slave his heart in poison deeply dipped his tongue with oily accents tipped a smile still ready at command the pliant bough the forehead bland meditation upon a broomstick this single stick which you now behold ingloriously lying in that neglected corner i once knew in a flourishing state in a forest it was full of sap full of leaves and full of boughs but now in vain does the busy art of man pretend to vie with nature by trying that withered bundle of twigs to its sapless trunk it is now at best but the reverse of what it was a tree turned upside down the branches on the earth and the root in the air it is now handled by every dirty wench condemned to do her drudgery and by a capricious kind of fate destined to make her things clean and be nasty itself at length worn out to the stumps in the service of the maids it is either thrown out of doors or condemned to the last use of kindling a fire when i beheld this i sighed and said within myself surely mortal man is a broomstick nature sent him into the world strong and lusty in a thriving condition wearing his own hair on his head the proper branches of this reasoning vegetable until the axe of intemperance has lopped off his green boughs and left him a withered trunk he then flies to art and puts on a periwig valuing himself upon an unnatural bundle of hairs all covered with powder that never grew upon his head but now should this our broomstick pretend to enter the scene proud of those birchen spoils it never bore and all covered with dust though the sweepings of the finest lady's chamber we should be apt to ridicule and despise its vanity partial judges that we are of our own excellencies and other men's defaults but a broomstick perhaps you will say is an emblem of a tree standing on its head and pray what is man but a topsy-turvy creature his animal faculties perpetually mounted on his rational his head where his heels should be grovelling on the earth and yet with all his faults he sets up to be a universal reformer and corrector of abuses a remover of grievances sharing deeply all the while in the very same pollutions he pretends to sweep away his last days are spent in slavery to women and generally the least deserving till worn to the stumps like his brother besom he is either kicked outdoors or made use of to kindle flames for others to warm themselves by Cossing A DOG In a humorous paper, written in 1732, entitled An Examination of Certain Abuses, Corruptions, and Enormities in the City of Dublin, Swift mentions this diversion, which he ludicrously enough applies to the violent persecutions of the political parties of the day. The ceremony was this. A strange dog happens to pass through a flesh market whereupon an expert butcher immediately cries in a loud voice and proper tone coss, "Costs, coss several times the same word is repeated by the people the dog who perfectly understands the terms of art and consequently the danger he is in immediately flies the people and even his own brother animals pursue the pursuit and cry attend him perhaps half a mile he is well worried in his flight and sometimes hardly escapes this adds swift our ill-wishers of the jacobite kind are pleased to call persecution and affirm that it always falls upon dogs of the tory principles trade of ireland swift being one day at a sheriff's feast among other toasts the chairman called out mr dean the trade of ireland the dean answered sir i drink no memories the idea of the answer was evidently taken from bishop brown's book against drinking the memories of the dead which had just then appeared and made much noise a beggar's wedding as swift was fond of scenes in low life he missed no opportunity of being present at them when they fell in his way once when he was in the country he received intelligence that there was to be a beggar's wedding in the neighborhood he was resolved not to miss the opportunity of seeing so curious a ceremony and that he might enjoy the whole completely proposed to dr sheridan that he should go thither disguised as a blind fiddler with a bandage over his eyes and he would attend him as his man to lead him thus accoutred they reached the scene of action where the blind fiddler was received with joyful shouts they had plenty of meat and drink and plied the fiddler and his man with more than was agreeable to them Never was a more joyful wedding scene. They sung, they danced, told their stories, cracked jokes, etc., in a vein of humor more entertaining to the two guests than they probably could have found in any other meeting on a like occasion. When they were about to depart, they pulled out the leather pouches and rewarded the fiddler very handsomely. The next day The dean and the doctor walked out in their usual dress, and found their companions of the preceding evening scattered about in different parts of the road, and the neighbouring village all begging their charity in doleful strains, and telling dismal stories of their distress. Among these they found some upon crutches, who had danced very nimbly at the wedding, others stone-blind who were perfectly clear-sighted at the feast the doctor distributed among them the money which he had received as his pay but the dean who mortally hated the sturdy vagrants rated them soundly told them in what manner he had been present at the wedding and was let into their roguery, and assured them if they did not immediately apply to honest labour he would have them taken up and sent to goal whereupon the lame once more recovered their legs and the blind their eyes so as to make a very precipitate retreat end of section one recording by james carson